Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Facing Trouble and Finding God, with a message called Facing the Brevity of Life. So let's turn to Psalm chapter 90 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are two fixed points in all our lives, birth and death. Years ago, author Joe Bailey wrote these words. In this day of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge, death especially frustrates us. An electrocephalogram may replace a mirror held before the mouth. Autopsies may become more sophisticated. Cosmetic embalming may take the place of pennies on the eyelids and canvas shrouds. But death continues to confront us with its black wall. Everything else seems to change, but death is changeless. We may postpone it, we may tame its violence, but death is still there waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow, along with Nobel Prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, and old man. The hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart, as well as the hopeful recipient, for the funeral director, as well as the corpse he manipulates. Death spares no one. You know, I know this sermon may seem uncomfortable to some. If it is, please don't stop listening. This is a discomfort that you must face. Denial does not make death easier. It makes it harder. It has been said everything is made explicit in our society. Sex, money, relationships, failures, everything that is except death. Oh, I know movies are filled with death, but they never depict it in the way that it is. Bad guys get shot and they die, but the grieving that follows and the change in families and the implications, well, those things are swept under the rug. I have occasionally met people in their 80s who tell me they have never thought about death. Even though they must surely face death very soon now, they say they never give it a moment's thought. Some even argue that it is preferable never to think about death. On the other hand, there are others, and I'm among them, who think about death every single day. I think of Richard Baxter, the English Puritan preacher who in the 1600s wrote, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. I think of Jonathan Edwards and his list of resolutions which he read to himself every day. They were for him stable anchor points that were to direct his amazing life. One of them included these words, resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He believed his daily thinking about death would bring focus to his life. He also believed that thinking of death was a motivation for holiness. For he, like all Christians, believed that he must one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Thinking of death has made his life meaningful. Well, you might guess that today's topic might be just a bit morbid. After all, I have entitled it Facing the Brevity of Life. But as you know, I'm doing a short one-week series on Psalm 73 and, and then Psalm 90, and it's entitled Facing Trouble and Finding God. I started from Psalm 73 with the issues of facing the reality of the success of the wicked in this world, and then also facing the reality of eternity and the implications that flow from that. But today and for the next two days after, I am basing this teaching on Psalm 90. The themes of this very challenging psalm is how to live in the shadow of our own impending death. The psalm teaches us how to pray, how to come to terms with our own sins, 
how to come to terms with an altogether righteous God, and with a request that God would favor us all the days of our lives. But more, it contains a great note of happiness. But since the theme of this series has been facing trouble, finding God, I can think of no greater trouble that we will face than the trouble that awaits us at the hour of our death. Some people face death with peace and others with horror. But thinking about death not as a concept or an abstraction, but an approaching reality is very difficult. Today and for the next two days, I will help you to do that along with teaching us how to pray and how to have joy. Today we'll be studying only the first four verses. Let's read them now. Psalm 90, verses 1 to 4. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Psalm 90 is the only psalm that was written by Moses. The psalm begins with a title. It simply says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Now, you might not know that Moses wrote poetry, but, but he did. The Bible contains two rather long poems written by that remarkable man. The first was written after Israel was delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea. The armies of Egypt had pinned Israel down on the banks of the Red Sea, but, but God had caused a column of fire to separate Israel from Egypt. And then God opened up the Red Sea with a wall of water on each side and put a clear pathway through the sea. And over one million Israelites, slaves of Egypt, walked with awe through this amazing sight. And yet, as they had come to the other side, the column of fire ceased, and the Egyptian armies with chariots came on through the Red Sea. And then God closed up the waters, and the might of Egyptian military, perhaps at that time the greatest military on earth, was drowned in the sea. And on that occasion, Moses wrote a song that all Israel sang, and, and we find that song in Exodus chapter 15. It begins, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You know, in that poem, Moses reflects on what all of Israel had just seen, power of God, his willingness to act on behalf of his people, the reality that such a thing has never happened before, and therefore he asks, who is like you, O Lord? He recounts the military might of God and, and how the news of this will make the nations tremble. You know, Moses wasn't thinking about his own death when he wrote that poem. He was thinking about the amazing reality of the power of his God. And in a certain way, Moses does reflect on the course of human life. If we live in faith while we are young, it is not death that occupies our thoughts. It's the thrill of seeing the might of God. You know, I remember the first time in my life in which I witnessed an answer to prayer. I remember it well. I was young. I was overwhelmed at how close God was and how great his power was. And before we move on, we need to note that, that Moses wrote this poem as a song, and he taught Israel to sing it. He wanted them to have a worship experience in which they never forgot the power of God. Now, Moses also wrote another poem. Again, it's a song to be sung, but this one is so different than the one he wrote on the shores of the Red Sea. His second song is written just before he climbed up Mount Nebu, where, where he was about to die. God had forbidden him from entering the Promised Land, but, but God had given him the grace to stand on that mountain and look out over the Promised Land. And on that occasion, the poem and the song he left behind is lengthy. 
He begins with the words, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And speak he does. He tells of the mercy of God towards Israel, but he recounts his own frustration and sadness at the continual rebellion of the people of God. And yet, he is still filled with hope, for he knows that there is no God beside the one true God. And so if we consider the songs of Exodus 15 and the song of Deuteronomy 32 as bookends, covering the length of Moses' ministry, where in between those events does Psalm 90, the one psalm that was written by Moses, I mean, where does that fit in? At what point in time was that written? You know, one hint is that Moses seems to have written his songs at some very significant moments, both in his own life and in the life of Israel. And that's led many Bible teachers to wonder what significant moment Moses might have written Psalm 90. Some have suggested that Numbers 13 to 14 is the right background. It's the account of what happened at Kadesh Barnea when, when Israel refused to enter into the promised land because they were afraid of their enemies and they lacked faith in God. And you'll remember, at that point in time, they turned back. You know, in consequence of that failure, an entire generation was condemned to wander about in a hostile desert for 40 years until that whole generation died. And over the next 40 years, Moses watched two million people die in the desert. It was kind of like the world's longest funeral march. He would have witnessed, I think, 50,000 funerals every year. That would have been over 100 every single day. <laughs> no wonder he thought much about death and the brevity of life. See, others suggest that, that he wrote this psalm coinciding with, with the events in Numbers 20 after the death of his sister Miriam. Then came his own sin, and in consequence of that, God forbade him from entering the promised land, meaning that he would die along with the other two million. And then, of course, came that death of his own brother Aaron. You know, perhaps he wrote Psalm 90 following one of those events. But whatever the case, one matter remains clear. Moses lived in the valley of the shadow of death. That was his experience. And that experience made him reflect. And he saw the brevity of life, but he was not overwhelmed with despair. And what he saw is so significant for us today. Everyone knows about the physical world, but what about the spiritual one? This is the world that isn't typically accessible through our five senses, but is just as real. In his latest series, The Invisible War, Dr. John Neufeld dives into the spiritual world, highlighting that it's an arena of great struggle, but also an expression of God's glory. This August, we want to express our gratitude for entrusting us with your gracious support. Your generosity allows us to participate together in sharing the gospel. That's why, for the month of August, we want to give you a free copy of Dr. John Neufeld's latest series, The Invisible War, on CD. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and ask for your free copy of The Invisible War today. That's 1-800-663-2425 or backtothebible.ca. So the man who wrote this poem, the man who told us that life is so short, had seen his fair share of deaths. What's remarkable about this poem, Psalm 90, is that the Bible teacher C.H. Leupold observes 
There does not appear to be any trace of bitterness or undue pessimism. Just plain, realistic thinking mark these words. That's really amazing. Moses is not shaking his fist at death or shaking in fear and desperation before death. He's merely taking into account that which is plain to anyone who takes the time to notice. We're dying. God is eternal. We're not. Life is amazingly short. The point I'm trying to make is that whether we want to think about it or not, death is always present. This year on planet Earth, somewhere around 55 million people will die. That's a bit short of twice the population of Canada. And people will mourn, and many will wail, and many will be crushed and in anguish. The cries of despair and defeat that rise from this planet every year are almost deafening. I'm amazed that some never think about it. I mean, how blind can we be? As we study this psalm, we will move quite slowly. And there's a reason for that. You know, for a great many years, there have been courses that have been offered to help people to read more quickly. You know, in many cases, that's good. But when it comes to our Bible, I would commend to you learning to read very slowly, savoring each word, reflecting on it. In this psalm, we will see Moses, the man of God, the man who has seen more death than most of us can fathom, reflecting on God and on man. And more so, Moses, the man of God, wants to teach us how we might pray. Verses 1 to 4 begins with the reality of the human condition. Moses says that God is eternal and we are momentary. Let's reread verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Please understand the context. Think of Israel in the wilderness. They left the Red Sea. They traveled south until they came to Mount Sinai. They spent a great deal of time there. They received the Ten Commandments and the laws of God. They built a tabernacle there. They received instructions for holy living, including sacrifices and the duties of priests. But after that, well, many of us don't understand what happened next. According to Numbers 33, in the 40 years of wandering in the desert, Israel set up at least 42 camps along the way. That's to say, in 40 years, they, that is the entire nation, moved at least 42 times. Now, in truth, none of that would have happened if they hadn't sinned and refused God's offer to trust him and enter into the promised land as God's gracious invitation to them. See, as a result of their sin, they spent a lifetime moving at the very least once a year on average. Listen, if you've moved every year for the rest of your life, I mean, what would you call home? Or to use biblical language, what would you call your dwelling place? The answer would be difficult to come by, don't you think? Uh, For those of you who have lived in the same place all of your lives, this thought is a strange one indeed. For you, there are familiar landmarks that always tell you what you call home. And when we live in the same place all of our lives, it is possible to suffer from an illusion. The illusion is simply this. This place, at least so we think, this place belongs to me. But Israel had no such illusion. No place belonged to them. The place that belonged to them lay in the future, a wild promise that God had given them through Abraham, but not in the present. It's like that with Christians today. Our home is in heaven. Our home is in the future based upon a wild promise that God has given us. So where's our dwelling place? And to that, Moses answers, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. I know of no other place that I can call home except in your presence. When I am near you, I am home. Now, this is so crucial to our discussion. If you want to face death, well, you must begin with that outlook. Don't find your dwelling place in your job. 
in your situation in life, in your marriage, your financial status, in your house, or the city in which you live, or in any other thing. Find it in God. My dwelling place, my home is in the presence of God. And this says Moses has been so for all generations. Now verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Now here we see next that Moses sees the reality of the human condition. God is eternal and we're momentary. And you'll notice that in verse 2, Moses describes God as being from everlasting to everlasting. He means that if you go backwards into time past, you will never find a time when God was not there. And if you go forward into infinite future, there will also never be a time when God is not there. The one constant, the only constant, is God. The book of Revelation would later say he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the only constant. Nothing else comes close to being home. Then Moses contrasts that with our own existence. Look again at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. The first word that comes to Moses' mind is the word dust. Now, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and there in chapter 2, he describes man as created from the dust of the ground. And here he speaks of returning to it. The cycle is now complete, and that cycle doesn't take very long. If you look backwards into time past, you will find that you, unlike God, were not there. And if you project just a few years into the future, you'll see that you're not there either. And then he mentions the significance of time. For God and for us, it's in verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. See, some have suggested that Moses speaks of a thousand years because, as Moses himself recorded it, the longest lifespan of any man was Methuselah. In his lifespan, which seems incredibly long, lasted 969 years, just short of a thousand. To us, that seems incredible. You know, I sometimes imagine, you know, if I had 969 years, I would hardly be beginning life right now. What a long lifespan would yet lay before me. I like that. And yet Methuselah himself is not remembered for anything other than he lived 969 years. What he did and what he loved and what he hated and what he accomplished and where he went and in what he succeeded and failed has been swept away like dust, and it is no more. And in God's sight, his life was like a watch in the night, which would typically have lasted for about three hours. Against the eternal perspective, even if we were to live a long time, it would fly away as if only a small amount of time had occurred. I wonder if Methuselah would have said, life is so short. Now, as we continue in this psalm tomorrow, I'm going to want to show that it really is possible to take comfort in that. But now you might ask, how is that? Well, think back once more to Moses' words in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth. It was Augustine who thought that the expression before the mountains, that phrase, he said contained a very particular meaning. He said that the mountains are the higher parts of the earth, and if God was before even the things that seem so formidable to us, This phrase allows us to look beyond the mountains to something that is far more formidable than that. And if that's what was behind Moses' thought, then the thought of God is more formidable. And might I suggest, the thought of God is then more formidable than death itself. I'm not overwhelmed with death. I'm overwhelmed with God. 
before death came into being, you were eternally there. You are the only constant, not even death and taxes are constant. And that brings us back to verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Imagine Moses is the man who had no dwelling place, no place to call home. Once he lived in Egypt and was considered one of the royal sons, and wealth and prestige were his back then. But his mother had taught him about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so he prefers the God of Abraham and the hope of a Messiah to the treasures of Egypt. Then he's driven from his home, and he finds a wife and lives with his father-in-law in the land of Midian. And then the call of God from a burning bush drives him from that quiet and peaceful life. Then back to Egypt and the ten plagues and the battle for the souls of a people. Then the Red Sea and then Mount Sinai and then the glory of the God who exists. He travels up the mountain and meets with God. But at one point in time, God tells him he's been there long enough. And then the wilderness wanderings and then finally the plains of Moab. And then up Mount Nebo where he's going to finally die. But before all of that, the constant change of the constant deaths year by year so that even the people who are close to him are soon no more. Even his brother and sister are gone. The one, the only constant in an ever-changing world has been his God. His God never changes. His promises never fail. He has been my dwelling place, says Moses. That's why Moses is not alarmed by the reality that he is dust. He's never attached himself to dust in the first place. He had no home in dust. He had a home in God. And we must learn to have that same home so that we will not fear the reality of death. John, uh, you know, I've been in ministry for a number of years, and I've traveled all over the country, lived in different places. I'm, I'm used to moving around. But some people get very set in their location, and they say, this is home, this will always be home. Is that okay? Yeah, I know. I find myself, Ben, thank you for saying that, because I've moved too, and, and I find myself envying people who have this wonderful privilege of calling someplace home, and all the sights and sounds and smells around that place are so familiar but I think there is a deception in that, and I'm not saying it's wrong to stay in the same place, obviously not. But I think unless we view ourselves in a pilgrim mindset, uh, we are never going to get the proper perspective on heaven. So there are people that grasp so strongly at this world that they can't fathom being without it. I think that's what's wrong. Have to be careful about that. Our home is in another place. Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. 
336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.